0: I invite you to open your Bibles again this morning to Matthew chapter 13. As Pastor Randy stated, this is a very long chapter, and for purposes of brevity and for time, uh, he read a large part of it. This morning we're just going to be considering an introduction to the parable of the soils, or the sower. But we introduced our study of the parables by answering a few questions. First of all, what are parables? We consider their definition. We consider their difference between myths and fables of men. And we looked at the details of the parables. Then we asked the question, How do we rightly interpret the parables? And then we saw that we rightly interpret the parables by carefully regarding the meaning of Jesus' words in their historical context, that we are to interpret the parables by discovering their main theme and not making every little detail its own message. And we rightly interpret the parables as we learn lessons about God's kingdom, Especially here in Matthew 13, and then later on in Matthew 20 and, and 22, there's much teaching about the kingdom of God. I would say that the kingdom of God is the central theme of the parables of our Savior. <clears throat> and then we asked the question, why did Christ sometimes preach in parables? And we noted two answers to that question, found in the context of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus preached in parables because they are an effective means of revealing truth, divine truth to receptive hearers. People like to hear stories and Jesus used stories to teach eternal truth. But he also preached in parables because they are an effective means of hiding divine truth from unreceptive, unreceptive hearers. If they won't hear Jesus' plain teaching, and they won't hear the parables, they won't hear anything. Well, this morning, we come to consider, begin to consider, the parable of the soils, and, or of the sower. Let's take a step back as we approach our study of the parables, and try to put it in its larger context. We notice a few things about the parables. First of all, as I stated, notice that the theme of the parables of Matthew 13, that theme is the kingdom of God. The first parable that Jesus utters of the seven of the sower of the soils shows us various ways the preaching of the kingdom of God is received. Four various soils represent four kinds of hearers. Furthermore, the parable of the tares and the wheat presents to us the mixed character of the kingdom of God. And the parable of the dragnet teaches us about the future consummation of the kingdom of God in purity and in grandeur. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the of the leaven instructs us about the growth and expansiveness and development of the kingdom, first outwardly in the world and also inwardly in believers. And the last two parables, the hidden treasure and the costly pearl, both teach us about the preciousness of the kingdom of God. And in our Lord's parables we note, too, the various audiences that He instructed. Not just the various kinds of hearers, but various audiences. In the the parable of the sower, and of the wheat, and the tares, and the mustard seed, and the leaven, they were spoken to the multitudes that were gathered by the Sea of Galilee. But in the parables of the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, the dragnet, They were spoken just to disciples inside of a house. A Mr. Taylor suggests why some of Jesus' parables were publicly spoken to a wider audience, and others were more privately spoken to the disciples in particular. He says, "...while the former four parables deal with those aspects of the kingdom which are public and obvious to all..." The latter three are concerned with the deeper things which are a matter of personal history and which are fully appreciated only by those who have become subjects of the kingdom. The first four may be verified by observation, but the last three have to be interpreted by experience. Notice the arrangement of the parables, it indicates a progress. In our Lord's revelation of the kingdom, the parable of the sower or soils is introductory to all of the other parables, illustrating the mixed impact of gospel preaching. The subsequent parables build upon this parable. The parables that follow seem to be arranged in three couplets the tares and the wheat and the dragnet both teach of the kingdom's mixed composition. The mustard seed and leavened teach the expansive influence of the kingdom message, while the hidden treasure and the costly pearl, as I said before, underscore the preciousness of God's kingdom. The scope of the kingdom teaching is far-reaching. It extends not just to individual hearers, but Widely to various people, groups who hear this message. For instance, Jesus' preaching was largely rejected by the Jews in general, especially by the cities that were clustered around Capernaum, where Jesus did much of His preaching, and therefore they they bore a greater responsibility because they beheld His miracles, and they heard His preaching. In fact, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it would be for the Jews who had the blessing of the Son of Man Himself, the King of the Kingdom, preaching these things to them. That says something to us, does it not? That we have the privilege of hearing the Word of God. While many people are in darkness, to whom much is given, much is required. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to give you ears to hear. Yet his message that was rejected largely by the Jews was received by some unusual people, some unexpected people, like Roman centurions and other Gentiles, like the Syrophoenician woman of whom he, he, was, he marveled at her faith. I haven't seen faith like that, he, he said to a centurion, and to the Syrophoenician woman, among the children of Israel. Well, may God give us those kind of ears. And this fact is evident in the parable of the sower and soils. Its chief lesson is that the growth of a seed, that is the seed of the gospel, always depends upon the quality of the soil, that is the condition of the human heart. The condition of our heart determines how we receive or if we reject the preaching of the word of God. And for this reason, this parable does not place its emphasis upon the character of the sower, or even upon the quality of the seed, but upon the spiritual condition of the hearer. We all come here with a spiritual condition. What is our condition? How are we going to hear? Are we going to benefit from the preaching of the Word of God? In other words, our character as hearers determines the benefit we receive from God's Word and the effect that it produces in us. The application of Jesus' parable lies right on the surface, does it not? We need to cultivate the habit of careful hearing if we would profit from the preaching of the Word of God. Do you come here this morning and do you say, Lord, help me. I'm going to sit down in the pew. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to sing hymns. I'm going to listen to the, the reading of the Word. I'm going to listen to the preaching. Lord, give me a heart to hear. Give me a heart to listen intently as if my very eternal destiny depended upon it, because it does. One preacher has well observed, A good hearer makes a lively preacher, just as really as a poor preacher makes a dull hearer. And eloquence... Is not all in the speaker. Eloquent hearing is absolutely indispensable to effective preaching. And so it is quite as necessary that listeners should be taught to hear as it is that preachers should be taught what and how to speak. The most eloquent preacher is going to be of no benefit if we are not eloquent hearers. Years ago, I brought a short series of messages entitled, How to Survive Your Pastor's Preaching. And in those sermons, we pondered the important question how should we respond to pastoral preaching? Brethren, this is no minor concern, if we wish to benefit from the public ministry of the Word. And as we're going to see in subsequent parables, how we hear the preaching of God's kingdom shows whether or not we are going to heaven or hell when we die. The importance of hearing and heeding the Word of God can hardly be exaggerated. This isn't just preacher talk, this is the message of the Bible, this is the teaching of our Savior. We don't want to be gathered among those that will be weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth because they didn't hear and heed the voice of Christ and the preaching of His Word. The importance of hearing and heeding the Word of God can hardly be... Exaggerated. In fact, we cannot reject the Lord's word without rejecting the Lord. Also, Jesus put it this way in John 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So let each one of us honestly examine our hearts in light of this truth. If our heart is not right toward Christ, our ears will be turned away from His Word. And if we come with, come to the preaching with a bias against God and His Word, we will not receive the blessings that He intends to provide all those who embrace the preaching of the Word of God. We have not because we hear not. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So as we come to the parable of the soils today, we're not going to finish it. We're, just, we're going to begin. We're going to look at the first three points. We're going to look at the setting, we're going to look at the sower, and we're going to look at the seed. And next time, God willing, we're going to look at the soils, and then we're going to look at the sequel. So first of all, let us consider the setting, the setting of the parable. It's a farmer seeding a field with a view toward a harvest. Farmers in Jesus' day, just like farmers in our own day, sought a fruitful harvest from their hard labors. But farmers in Jesus' day did not sow with surgical precision like farmers today, with sophisticated GPS-guided equipment. All their sewing was done by hand in a comparatively hit-or-miss fashion. So imagine the scene uh, before Jesus as He opens His mouth, sitting in the boat to those who are standing on the shore. It may be... That when Jesus began to speak this parable, he observed a farmer behind the crowd upon the hills descending to the Sea of Galilee. He was watching him. Others may have been turning around and looking. They lived in an agrarian society. He's speaking language to them that they understand. Farmers must be a hopeful people. They have many obstacles that they have to face with weather, blights, insects. Farmers must be a hopeful people, and so must gospel preachers. Hope urges them on. Paul uses this illustration in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 10. The plowman ought to plow in hope. And the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Well, he plants in hope that he's going to be a thresher. And he threshes in hope to share in the crops. Gospel sowing, like farming, is hard work that yields a crop to the faithful laborer. Timothy takes up this. Or Paul does in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6. The hard working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Jesus was planting here. He was plowing. He was turning over the earth. He was tossing seed into the soil with a hope to have a great ingathering. So that very briefly is the setting. Consider, secondly, the sower. The sower. Who is the sower in our Lord's parable? Well, the parable of the wheat and the tares identifies Him as the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate sower. But He does not work alone. He sent out His apostles as sowers to labor with Him. You remember He sent out the 70, two by two, to go and labor, and to cast seed, and to spend their, their hearts and all their time planting seed, so that the Lord Jesus could come behind them, as He often did, and bring in the increase. So the Lord does not work alone. He sent out His apostles as sowers to labor with Him. In fact, wherever the word is sowed, Jesus carries out His labor labors through His servants, and so we are to understand what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17 to speak of Christ who never personally preached in Ephesus. Paul says of Him, He, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. Well, Jesus obviously, He, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He never preached in Ephesus, but He preaches through His laborers that He sends out He continues to sow through His servants. Gospel sowers then included the apostles and the evangelists who sowed the gospel seed throughout the first century world. Jesus' great commission was a command to make disciples and to establish churches by the sowing of the world with gospel seed. And Paul was obedient to that commission he says in Acts 20 and verse 25, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, after spending three years with them, he says, I went about preaching the kingdom. Extending beyond the apostles and the evangelists of the infant church, gospel sowers down to our own day, would include pastors who are commanded to preach the word of God, to sow the seed, in season and out of season. But the ranks of gospel sowers is wider yet. It's not just formally commissioned apostles and the churches, pastors that are responsible for sowing kingdom seed. It also includes ordinary Christians. Not just the man in the pulpit, but the people in the pew. The New Testament teaches that all of us are witnesses if we are Christians. And what do witnesses do? Witnesses have truth to tell. They have a testimony to give. They're not to be silent. To be silent is to be unfaithful. So witnesses testify to what they know, and Christians know the Lord, and they're commanded to speak to others, to share the reason for the hope that is within them, to sanctify Christ in their hearts as Lord, and to speak of Him on their lips. We read in in the book of Acts that Christians who had been scattered because of Saul's persecution, that they didn't go and hide, even under the threat of death. We read in Acts 8 and verse 3 that they went about, not the apostles and the pastors and the deacons and the evangelists, they, that is those who had been won to Christ through the preaching of the kingdom of God, they went about preaching the word. So that includes you and me. So what is then is the sower's method? Well, his method is very simple. The sower broadcasts seed, the seed of God's word. He's to do so far and wide indiscriminately to all. Because we sow and others water, but it's God that gives the increase, Paul says. So this sowing is to be Far and wide. This was the chief sower's method, and it is our model. He planted seed far and wide in Israel, and we are to plant seed far and wide in our Israel, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, and if God should send us to the farthest corners of the earth. In whatever we're doing, whether we're laboring formally in the ministry or we're engaged in just our ordinary labors, The Lord Jesus says in Luke 4, verse 43, But He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. He was self-consciously aware that God had sent him into this world entrusted with a message, and he was to preach it far and wide, go from city to city and town to town, and meet people along the way, speak to all of the kingdom of God. He knew his time was short. He knew that night was going to come when no man can work, and he was busy about his kingdom labors. Luke eight and verse one, and it came about soon afterwards that he began going from about from one city to uh, uh, one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Brethren, because Christ has not returned, he hasn't sent out his angels to gather in all to the feet of Christ, separating the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares and the good fish from the bad fish. The responsibility to sow is still upon us. The day of sowing is not complete. Paul, like Jesus, preached the kingdom till his dying day. The book of Acts, in fact, closes by informing us that the Apostle was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered, until the day in which he had to lay his head upon the block and he was ushered into the presence of God Indeed, the advancement of Christ's kingdom and His future glory filled Paul's mind to the very end. Thy kingdom come, burned in Paul's bosom. It occupied his preaching. It animated his hope. His last words include these, 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that briefly is the sower. Consider thirdly, before a few words of concluding application, the seed. The setting, the sower, now the seed. Well, the ultimate sower we have seen is the Lord Jesus Sowers include all who labor in His name to scatter, kingdom seed. So what is the identity of this seed? Well, Jesus identifies it in two parallel passages. In Matthew 13 and verse 19, He calls it the word of the kingdom. And in the parallel in Luke 8:11, he calls it the word of God. One more specific, one more general. Both speaking of the same thing. It is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus began His public ministry, preaching the word of the kingdom. Matthew 4 and verse 17. From that time, that is, after Jesus' baptism... After his trial in the wilderness, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom, the message of the gospel is to repent, to embrace the king, to enter the kingdom of God. This same message Jesus entrusted to His apostles when He sent them out to preach. Matthew 10 and verse 17. Remember, He gathered in the apostles. He chose twelve. And He com- commissions them to preach. And He commits to them this message. As you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was their message. It was the preaching of the kingdom of God. And we are commanded to seek this kingdom. They're not, we're not only commanded to preach it, we're also commanded to seek it. Matthew 6 and verse 33. But seek first His kingdom and righteousness, and all these things, all these temporal things, will be added to you. You will not be the loser for seeking first the kingdom. The Lord's not going to leave you high and dry. He's going to provide for you as you preach His kingdom. So seeking God's kingdom means seeking to promote the reign and the practice of the righteousness of God, to turn from sins, to turn unto God, to turn away from those things that we did which were in violation of the law of God and seek to live according to God's precepts and principles. This is the first duty. This is job one for all who would enter the kingdom of God. The word of the kingdom, then, is the good news regarding Jesus coming as Messiah and the nature of his kingdom. Spurgeon says, the gospel is the word of the kingdom. It has royal authority in it. It proclaims and reveals King Jesus, and it leads men to obedience to his sway, end of quote. This word of the kingdom, brethren, is not a different message than the good news Of Jesus Christ. The kingdom message is the gospel message. It is a message which calls men to repent of their sins and to embrace Jesus not only as Savior, but to submit to Him as Lord. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And as we will see in later parables, The word of the kingdom points to a king who came from heaven to secure a kingdom for his blood bought people who gladly submit to his gracious rule. He is king of his kingdom. And if you're a Christian, you are a citizen, you are a servant, you are a son of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 our residence is here but our citizenship is there we're being fitted to enter the fullness of the kingdom of god in our christian life here we've come from sin to grace and grace is going to lead us to glory we're being prepared for the kingdom to come the parables that follow the sower and soils reveal the impact of the gospel message in the advancing of Christ's kingdom in its world, bringing it to its consummation. So, what do we know then about the seed? Especially, what do we know about the quality of this seed? We know that it's the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it's calling men to repentance, to believe upon Him, to be saved. What about the quality of this seed? Well, Jesus says in, in Matthew 13 and verse 37 That it is good seed. It is good in its very nature. It's pure. It enlightens men's eyes. It's precious. As precious because it's powerful. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. It is precious, furthermore, because it reveals God's sovereign purposes. It always accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. God hides it from saving those who don't receive it but reject it. But he reveals it as the power of God to those who embrace it. The overall purpose of the good seed is that it may germinate in the hearts of the receptive, leading to eternal life. Has that word germinated in your heart? Has it put down roots that go all the way to Jesus Christ and wraps around that rock? And is it borne fruit upward through the ground unto eternal life? Ask yourself that question this morning. Am I a son of the kingdom? Is Jesus Christ my Lord And my Savior. So then what are some of the characteristics of this good seed, this word of the kingdom? Well, the Bible has much to say about this seed. And so we cannot be exhaustive, but only suggestive. The overall purpose of this seed is good and it is powerful Notice the seed is good for many reasons. First of all, the seed is good because it gives light to those in darkness and educates the ignorant. I actually thought about reading Psalm 119, at least the last portion of that psalm, which speaks about the Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says this, the unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You see, we walk in darkness. We need the light of the gospel, lightening our eyes and lightening our sin-darkened hearts. It gives understanding to the simple, the naive, those that don't know the truth of Jesus Christ. It gives us understanding. It makes us wise unto salvation. Secondly, the seed is good because it is a fire that consumes error and a hammer that breaks hard hearts. Jeremiah 23, 29. God asks, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? And here in the context of, of Jeremiah 23, That that word is a fire. It consumes the chaff of the false prophets. And it's like a hammer that crushes them and their followers. But it breaks our hard hearts. It consumes away the dross of our sin as well. Thirdly, this seed is good because it accomplishes God's work in believers. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13... And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, they were good ground hearers. You accepted it not as the word of men, not just those things that come from the minds of men. No, you accepted it for what it was, for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe, you see the true preaching of the word of God is the word of God. When it's faithful to the text and faithful to, to God, it is the word of God. That's what Paul says here in Second or in First Thessalonians two. Fourthly, this seed is good because by it the Spirit of God brings dead sinners to life. You remember what Jesus said shortly before. Many of His professed disciples turned on their heels and walked no longer with Him. Jesus says, John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. You can't work this up yourself. It's not by the doing of, of religious efforts. It's, it's not anything in you. You can't give yourself life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Oh, may the Spirit empower those words and bring life to those that are dead in sin and vivify those that are true Christians. Make them more alive in Christ. Fifthly, this seed is good because it has the power to save every believing sinner. And we saw this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. But notice what Paul says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Have you experienced this power? And notice the promiscuous power of this gospel. It's not to one select group of people. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to whom it was originally sent, and also to the Greek. And of course, the Romans knew this. Their church was probably largely composed of Gentile hearers with quite a number of Jews as well. Sixthly, this seed is good because it always accomplishes God's sovereign purposes. Isaiah 55 and verse 11. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It cannot fail to perform God's saving purposes in this world. He will have his people and he will take his word and by the power of his spirit he'll bring them to life in Jesus Christ. Seventh, this seed is good because it exposes our inner and true self before God. This word finds us out. Hebrews 4:12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, the very depths of your being, of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It works its way right down into our being and it shows us who we are. And there is no creature hidden from His sight But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. Isn't that what Psalm 139 says? He knows the words before we speak. He knows them in our hearts. He knows our intentions, even if they're never spoken. The Word of God does this. God knows us completely, but the Word of God shows us to ourselves. Well, that's as far as we're going to get this morning. I just want to bring a few words of concluding application this morning. Notice, first of all, lessons from the parable's setting. We've looked at the setting, the sower, and the seed. Notice, first of all, lessons from the parable's setting. First, let us learn to view the world as a fallow field that needs gospel seed. Jesus went about doing good, and the we might say I say this reverently the best good that he did was to plant seed in men's hearts. He healed people, he saved them for for time, but he also saved them by the seed of the word for all eternity. Let us see the world as a fallow field that needs gospel seed. Matthew nine, beginning at verse thirty six. And seeing the multitudes, he that is Jesus felt compassion. He was moved in his inside. Very powerful word. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. They're wandering aimlessly. They're heading toward prep- precipices. They're stuck in the mire. They're foundered. They're helpless. All foolish because of their sin. Leading them into all manner of trial and trouble. They're sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Men, are you listening? You've seen what I've been doing. I'm grooming you for this kind of work. Do you see that the fields are wide unto harvest? But where are the sowers? Where are the reapers? Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And before there's going to be a harvest, there has to be a sowing. Second, let us ask the Lord of the harvest to open our eyes to see the need of the lost around us that they are without hope and without God and under the wrath of God. They're desperate. They need the grace of God, they need the word, they need the gospel seed. Are we moved by the sight of a world perishing in sin? We say, well, Pastor Steve, you God hasn't called me to be a missionary. Ah, but he's put every one of us in a mission field. We bump elbows with people all the time that are without hope and without God in this world. They have not the gospel seed. Our pockets are filled with the seed if we're true Christians. Thirdly, let us not stop with a knowledge of the plight of the lost or even to feel for their terrible plight. But might we plead with the Lord to give us an earnest desire and open up opportunities to meet their desperate need to receive gospel seed. Do we pray, Lord, open my eyes, burden my heart, move my feet, open my mouth. I have to confess that I'm not as faithful as God has called me to be, not nearly so. Secondly lessons from lessons from the soil or the sower first of all let us be obedient to our calling as witness sowers to broadcast the gospel even as our lord did as the apostles did as early christians did as faithful christians have always done and still do We have an exceeding cloud of witnesses around us testifying to the fruit of their labors. They're beckoning to us to come into the fields. A universal law applies to gospel sowing, even it does to ordinary farming. We will never reap if we never sow. And as with prayer, so with gospel sowing, we have not because we ask not, and we reap not because we sow not. Many of you remember the story of Johnny Chapman. You know him better as Johnny Appleseed. He was a real person, he was an American pioneer, he was a nurseryman in the late 1700s who introduced apple trees. He went around sowing apple trees large parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, present-day Ontario, and parts of present-day West Virginia. They have trees, apple trees there now, because of his efforts. Brethren, would it be a stretch for us to regard ourselves as gospel counterparts to Johnny Appleseed? We've all been given precious gospel seed to sow, but do we sow or do we keep the seed to ourselves where it does no good to others? Remember Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve. There's a famine today for hearing the word of God Sinners all around us are perishing for the want of gospel seed. Have we seed and shall we not sow? We often sing, but can we honestly say I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. Do those words just fall off of our tongue? Or or do they express the desire of our hearts? Second, under this point, let us sow the gospel seed in hope, believing that our efforts shall not be in vain. Paul encouraged weary Christians in in Corinth to look forward to the resurrection be hopeful of the coming resurrection and that encouragement to look forward to the coming resurrection i believe applies no less to believers sowing gospel seed, laboring to win souls to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Nothing sown, nothing harvested. You know, I'm very encouraged when I hear you men at the prayer meeting. Say, God has given me opportunity to talk to this man at work, or to my neighbor, or to people I work with. That should thrill our souls when we hear that, brethren, because that's something of the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ as the sower. They've imbibed something of that evangelistic fire. Oh, may it burn within our hearts. Finally, a lesson from the parable's seed. If you would be a bold and faithful gospel sower, you must have confidence in the seed. Meditate often on its power. Ponder its influence. In your own life and in the lives of Christians, you know how it led them from darkness into life. Once they were profligates, and now they have the praise of God upon their lips. Before they were cursing, now they're, they're, they're praying and they're praising. That's power, beloved. That's the evidence of the grace of God coming clothed with power. Think how often it has impacted men wherever it is preached. How it turned the first century world upside down, and it is still doing so today. In the hand of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is the power of God and is salvation to everyone who believes. The faithful sowing of this seed is going on right now, bringing countless Muslims to Christ and is putting false religion on the run in various places in the world right now. This seed is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, for destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. It possesses the power of God. It's only as strong as our faith. Let's possess this strength of itself, but we're not going to employ it it until we believe that it is what it says it is. It's the power of God unto salvation power of God dunamis we get our word dynamite from that the seed unleashes the power of God this word is able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ farmers today are keen to plant the hardiest and most fruitful seed available And no seed is hardier or more fruitful than the gospel. It saves all who believe it from their sin and from Satan and from hell forever. John 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Is there a more wonderful message than that? we'll be faithful to preach it to the degree that we have faith to believe it. So let me ask you in closing, have you received the life-changing, life-giving Word of God? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you found that Word powerful in your life? That His words are spirit and they're life. Are you not what you once were, but you can say, I am what I am by the grace of God, because God gave me faith to believe in that message. I was once bound for hell, now I'm bound for heaven. All things are being made new in me, and I'm a wonder to myself what God is doing. This cannot but be the power of God unto salvation. It's the seed of the gospel germinating in my heart, making me ripe for everlasting life, which is begun in me now, and will be enjoyed in all of its fullness and glory. Listen to the promise. joined to a warning from the great gospel sower himself. John 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Are you in the first part of this verse or in the last part of this verse? Do you have eternal life or does the wrath of God, is it hanging over you, suspended nothing other than by the threat of his mercy? Oh, may God open your eyes to see his kingdom. Might he give you eyes to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may this be the day in which you are raised from the dead spiritually. You're given eyes to see, indeed to look upon Christ and to believe in him. Let's pray. Lord oh, Father, we, we bless you for the wonder of this gospel. How merciful you are to send your Son into this world with a message of salvation, to be delivered from the wrath to come, to be delivered from the devil, to be delivered from our sins, to be delivered unto everlasting glory. Oh, might you begin that glory today by sending forth your grace into the hearts of any who are without hope because they're without God. In this world, that you might make them citizens of the kingdom of God, fixing their eyes even this day upon Jesus, who is the author and will be the finisher of their faith. For we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.